Um, good afternoon. Uh, I'd like to sit with us, you, for five minutes, and then I'll offer um, part two, or a little bit of it today, of this theme that I began last week, of the Buddha as a virtuoso. And today, looking particularly around um, working with some of our patterning, our karmic formations, and what it might mean to be uh, skillful on the way to virtuosity with our, um, the shapes that we take to be who and what I am. But let's sit together. Whatever is our motivation for coming to practice, whether we conceive of it as for healing, for serving our world, for refuge, for sanity, for the love of the mystery, Perhaps all of those can come together under this theme of uh, thinking about practice and thinking about Buddha as a virtuoso of the instrument of himself. And last time I explored some of the bases for looking at this idea. Um, because if we want to be... Uh, freer? What are we being freer for? If we ba value freedom, what is it for? Sometimes we know what we want to be free from, right? And in the, the, the practice, the uh, tradition tells us free from greed, hate, and delusion. Free from being bound by the ways that the separate self constellates on this location and I take it to be me. If we're interested in creative response to ourself, to our world, then we want to examine any of those places, any of those conceptions, any of those births, into a separate self that keep us separated through fear, through ideologies, through um, some just sometimes gut reflexes of shrinking or puffing out as a way to manage the scorch of contact. So the virtuoso, the Buddha as virtuoso, what made him a expert, a skilled master of his instrument? And I looked a little bit last time at the instrument. Um, much we could say about that, but what, what, what was the evidence of? Let's look at the evidence of that. One of the things we hear about a Buddha, and again, really, if you weren't here last time, I want to include Buddha as, yes, historical Buddha, absolutely, but that of us which is awake, Buddha, that wakeful aspect that when we recognize and can let that be um, uh, inhabited, there is real refuge in Buddha. There is refuge in the knowing, in the seeing, in the awake, bright um, Buddha that is sitting right here in this seat. And that Buddha is not apart from all those separate self-senses, those contractions, those defenses, those puffings out, those shrinking backs. It's not apart from those. 
that there might be something quite magical at that intersection of refuge in that awake knowing. And then what is served, what comes to the table, who comes to the table when I'm sitting here doing my practice. That in that meeting of Buddha, with the separate senses of self, the ones I have taken myself to be that I haven't even seen some of them till I come sit on my cushion. They've been living through me. They've been riding me. I have the chance to see, to touch, to feel, to smell, to understand, to resonate with, so that those beings can start to be freed. Those beings that I see externally, I find also arising to the table here in my practice. So I'll say more about that. So the evidence of the Buddha as virtuoso, one of the um, things that makes a Buddha a Buddha, and not just a, a fully awakened, as if that wouldn't be enough, but what makes a Buddha a Buddha is that she, he, they are able to teach according to where each one is at. Right? So you see stories in the teachings of the Buddha. Um, uh, there's a lovely analogy or story where he meets um, a, a guy, and I believe he's not that bright, I think was the story. <coughs> Excuse me. And I think he might have been a metal worker or a jewelry maker or something like that. And it was a very sincere practitioner, but his mental uh, cognition wasn't the, the most developed part of him. He had other gifts and other developments. And the Buddha's way of teaching him how to attend was perfectly attuned to this, this particular man's gift, his particular skill, his particular love of the way he created metalwork and jewelry. And that the Buddha could say, and gave a, a, an idea of actually that your attention can be that really light touch that you need when you're attending to these kind of metals and when you're forming this kind of jewel. Right? And then, you know, the story goes that the, 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 the man then immediately got it and woke up and etc. But such was the dexterity of the instrument of the Buddha. He had done the work enough that the responding to the world that came in front of him was creative, it was genius. It could play many tunes. The instrument was fashioned and tuned and had a range that meant many, many responses to the world were possible. It's not just a one-hit wonder. Remember I talked about that last time. Some of, sometimes we have one tune. Um, not always. We're, we're, we're also you know, multi, different every day, but the instrument sometimes that certainly I can remember playing a lot in my family of origin was the party blower. And one of my brothers would say something and it would just be, you know, I'd, I'd just kind of react back. That was it. Not much dexterity, not much range. Not much skill yet, not much uh, perspective. I was concretizing and believing that what was coming towards me was absolutely what it appeared to be. One other way of looking at the Buddha, or and not just the Buddha, but Buddha, this knowing, this awake nature, is from the perspective of the boundless heart. So we have the image in the teachings of the four Brahma Viharas. The four beautiful qualities of response to the world. Of kindness, of um, compassion, of joy, and of equanimity. And that one way we might think of our instrument as it clarifies, as we work with those places that contract and feel like they're me and we're seeing the world from that instrument in that moment, as they clarify this, this jewel of our nature 
is clearer. And you could think of it like a, like a diamond, you know, like the, the, Buddha, the Buddha's heart and mind, his citta, like a diamond with these different facets of joy, of kindness, of equanimity, of compassion. And that that jewel is free. That jewel can respond in the, not through his idea of how to respond, but because that's what intelligence does. It responds with the uh, attuned and skillful mixture of joy, of equanimity, of kindness, of compassion. And I've seen this in, you know, I've seen this in people who've practiced, practitioners, teachers of mine, who can respond. And I don't want to limit it to the teaching function because whatever we're called to in our life, there are many functions in the world. There are many ways this creativity um, can, this virtuosity or this skill can work for all of our benefit. But I've seen it in teachers, you know, sometimes, I remember asking one of my teachers a question in a retreat um, in a different context than this, and I was just kind of with something, and I was a little bit sticky with it, and I can't remember what it was I was asking her. And she came with this kind of, she sort of came with this, it felt like lightning towards me, like, like that, and I was kind of a little bit stunned. And I could feel that that, that clarity and sharpness that, which, that she met me with, not, it's not always like that with sharpness, not at all. It went right in, like a, like a knife through butter, separated out the kind of dross that I was kind of entangled with, and I felt the kindness in it. I felt the kindness, not any idea I'd ever had of kindness. Kindness has to be nice, kindness has to look like this, kindness has to, you know, it's always softly spoken, kindness is... Oh, it was this extraordinary skill, this extraordinary dexterity that, that in that moment she met me with a virtuosity. I wasn't hurt. Not because I'm not prone to being hurt. <laughs> not at all. That will be one of the shapes many of us have to work with, the one who feels hurt. And sometimes we are, and sometimes the teacher can hurt us. That can all happen. Absolutely. But in this particular case, the gift and the skill showed me something new about virtuosity. So the particular um, thread I want to run through in this reflection uh, is actually from a student that I was working with this morning on Skype and I rang her back about an hour later say, would you mind if I used your practice as the example in the talk this afternoon? I said, I won't mention your name. She said, that's really fine. It's very fine. So, um, and the particular way I want to look at skill today and working with some of our patterning that can arise on retreat is to look at it from the perspective of the three centers. To look at how to work with these sticky shapes of self from the perspective of body, sensation, mindfulness of body, the energetics, the way our body takes a certain shape when we're in any mood, but certainly um, we, can, we can usefully turn to body as a doorway in to working with senses of self. That's one center. Second center of the heart level, the, the emotional, relational um, sensitivity of heart and how that relates to working with self-structures. And then the cognitive, the bright seeing of um, what we can actually see and understand and hear as some of the um, uh, sometimes the dialogue or the monologue of some of those senses of self where we can understand who's here. Because all of these showed up for this person's work this morning as she was exploring. And um, she's someone who's done a lot of practice uh, 
on the cushion, on retreats like yourselves. And she has her practice of her work in the world of serving in the particular way that she does, in the particular way she serves. Come on in, Ava. So if we think of, uh, I'll use her as an example, if we think of all the practice she or you have done, or anyone, or is still left to do, as somebody said in an interview the other day, they said, wow, as, as they were getting a sense of um, something really moving in their practice, and in this case it was opening to a whole new sense of equanimity and the open-heartedness that is also cool at the same time. And the person said, wow, I didn't even know this was possible. What else is possible? Right? That sense of adventure, of more practice. But if we think of all the practices we've done, all the ways we've worked the chitta, all the ways we've made it malleable through our work on the cushion, in the world, hopefully we'll get those together, um, uh, with metta, with the Brahma-viharas, with equanimity, with mindfulness of body breathing, right? With looking through the lenses of anicca, anatta, dukkha. With practicing the paramis, with practicing generosity and patience, etc. All of those practices that can, that can meld and make the chitta more malleable more available to not just play one hit when something happens. That there are more creative responses available. So we practice, it's like tuning the instrument, widening the range of the instrument, unbunging some of the keys. You've got one of sometimes those, I've got a piano that there's one note you always don't play. It, it just doesn't make a sound anymore. Or other instruments, let's imagine it's a, an instrument with holes, a wind instrument, that sometimes the holes get bunged up. Some of our practices, like we're, we're letting the air in again, we're letting the space in, we're unbunging the holes. So that this instrument that you are, don't even limit your imagination of what kinds of melodies might be played, what kinds of silence can be tuned to, what kinds of keys, what kinds of strings, what kinds of holes are here for the creative intelligence of this life to respond to itself, to itself on this location and to itself in all locations. So you've done your, that's done your work, there's more to do always for all of us, practices tuning the, re- the, the instrument, developing the range of the instrument, clarifying the instrument. And before I go to my student this morning, such that some of those self-senses, those things that we have believed to be us, you know, that either that I'm not good enough or I don't belong, or I'm the best, and no one hasn't seen it yet, and I know. Um, I'm not welcome here. Um, Or other more hidden senses of self that we don't see till far into practice because they are informing the very way I attend to my breath. For example, somebody was working with last week, done again a lot of practice and we don't see these things until we see them and they said wow <coughs> I see that I'm someone when I practice I'm, I'm really dedicated I really go into things really deeply beautiful gift beautiful skill very dedicated sincere all of that is beautiful but the limitation was for this person and they could really feel it in their heart was that the heart was getting pushed. The heart was getting shoved. That every time, or every time, that in, 
in that way of attending, there was a kind of a bearing down, a pressurizing, a pushing of the heart. That then the heart moved into distress, gives us the signals and says, wait, wait a sec. First coming as emotion, in this case, that's not all what emotion is. Coming as emotion, till that person backed up enough to sense, oh my goodness, this way that I bear down on things, I think the language they use actually is killing me. It's killing my heart. And in seeing that, feeling the dukkha of that, the heart responded and that person's attention started to widen and widen. And at first that felt like a risk and may continue to do so because it doesn't feel like such hard work. That person didn't recognize themselves so well in that gesture. But as they kept faith with widening, what was beautiful about the penetrating and the deepening aspect of attention started, starts to be more married with this widening, this softening, this resting back. One of my friends who's a, also a teacher he gives the example of his uh, earlier, pr earlier practice, but actually earlier means the f probably the first 10 years <laughs> in that case. Um, again, different from the person I've just talked about. And my friend had been practicing in Thailand, I think, for a long time. And he was very sincere, very dedicated, very on it. The Dharma was right at the center for him. And he said he came back to England and went to a village fete, the kind they have around here. And I think it was a village fete. And there was a game you could play um, where there was a chute, like a um, drain pipe, plastic drain pipe, where the guy running the store would put like a pretend mole underground mole, little creature. It's probably probably some stockings stuffed with, you know, something. And you, the, the mole would... Oh, actually, there's two. There's, there's two stories here. There's the mole going down the, the chute this way, and that when it comes out, your job as the person at the village fair, and it doesn't sound very dharmic, does it, is to, is to whack the mole on the head. Right, to see if you can get it, to see if you're sort of tuned your responses enough to, to whack the mole. There's another version of that game where the moles pop up. Out of there. They're not real moles. You have to kind of get them, see how many you can get. And the point of this story about virtuosity is the person realized that that's what they were doing in their practice. Right? That every time something came up that was slightly disturbing or slightly kind of like didn't conform with that person's view, limited view at that point of practice. It's always going to be limited to some degree. Right? That person just wanted to not be hassled. Didn't want to be bothered. So anytime something came up, poof, poof, poof. And he saw that. And it might sound extreme, but I know the equivalent for myself if my view of practice is just for stillness. Now, certain practices will be when we're practicing the instrument. That's beautiful. But if we make that a view about not wanting to be disturbed, ever, we're really narrowing the scope. And we actually, when you see it in your own mind, cause a kind of violence to your own heart. Because we separate what is a boundless heart. We separate it into just mine. And just my circumscribed area of stillness and silence. And there's a kind of a, a kind of breach that we feel in the heart as we get more sensitive, a pain in the heart. So there are many senses of self we don't see until we see them. 
in the way that we're attending. Others of us might be very laid back. It's not usually the tendency of people who come on silent retreats, but it might be yours. Many of us might be very, very laid back. Ah, yeah. Thinking, feeling, so what? It's all good. Right? But... But for, and for some of us, there may be a sense of self-established uh, believing that we are this very laid-back one. And actually, we might benefit from a little sharpening, a little crispness, a little more precision, a little bit more um, discrimination about what we're seeing, how we're seeing, and what's seeing, what's knowing. And again, before I get to the, the woman this morning, I might not get there now in the end, but um, I just want to tell one story again, but making this really grounded of, of potential virtuosity. Hopefully, if you weren't here last week, and you, if the word's interesting, you, you might want to hear what I said so that virtuosity doesn't become some thing that sounds like it's out of our reach. I talked about that last time. Uh, a friend, colleague, and teacher of mine who's a monk and a monk has been a monk for many, many years and had to do a lot of work, as we do as humans. Um, I want to give an example of his virtuosity. And a couple of years ago, he came to visit and he knocked on the door and I answered the door. And I said to him, I was really pleased to see him. I love him very much. I said, how are you? And he stood there and he's got a lot of presence. He stood there. I could, felt like his feet were really in the earth. And it's, it's a, lot of, a lot of presence, a lot of cultivation. Um, a lot of bright here. How are you doing? And he said, hmm, I'm just noticing, just wondering if I'm welcome here. Right? And the way he said it wasn't... I got it right away. It wasn't, you've got to welcome me and you've got to be really nice and I'm really vulnerable and please welcome me. It was, he was tracking that after all this 30 years of work, that shape deeply imprinted. We could say, yes, give all kinds of causes, birth, family, beyond, 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 beyond. That shape arises for him at the beginning and the entry to new contact. Any of you recognize that? Right, That shape for him arises. He wasn't bound by it. He only told me, he probably doesn't tell everyone when he walks in, you know. You know, we have some practice relationship as well. He wouldn't load that on everybody. It wasn't a load, actually. It was very light, very light. Just seeing, am I welcome here? Right? And that structure, that sense of self, which we all know, whether we have that one or other ones, we know that when they're riding us, the world shrinks and narrows. My instrument has one tune, usually only, which is either I don't go and knock on the front door, or I knock on the front door and I do whatever way I've managed to compensate for that. Or I try and pull the other one. <laughs> right? Wasn't that so light? In a way, his music, the music of his presence, of his beauty, of his ethics, of his... All of that work was shining. It wasn't hindered. That shape had become transparent. That shape, and I'm calling it a shape because when we look, and that's what I want to look at today, when we look from the perspective of the three centers, body, emotion, cognitive faculty, there's kind of like a shape that we inhabit when we're in those senses of self. That shape of his had, had become more and more transparent. It wasn't leading Neither was he whacking it down. It was becoming transparent to Buddha. 
to that bright, awake refuge. So how does that apply on retreat? Whether it's grosser, so-called grosser senses of self, where we're walking around the corridor and we've been really quiet and happy for half an hour or a day, or and something happens and then we're hostile to the person who left their slippers on top of my slippers. You've never had that, obviously. How does your aversion show up, if not there? Right? And they become they seem really petty things and we thought, oh gosh, I'm only worried about that and the world's, you know. But but let's look at those things, not because they're the most important thing, the incident, but because if we want to look at serving our world in whatever way we wish to serve, let's look. Let's look, let this instrument see whichever holes are bunged up where self and other starts to constellate in any way whatsoever. Whether it's grosser forms of self, whether it's very subtle ways that our attention is conditioned by, you know, let's say the way I attend to my body for 30 years, I've been just a little bit floppy. I kind of sit like that when I sit and... And I get still and I have some insights and I go deeper. But something is a little undercharged, is a little flaccid. Is that the right word? It's like kind of sort of, doesn't have a, um, a crispness to it. And only after some time we might say, oh, it's really subtle. But we feel it in the body. We feel that lack of um, tone in the body and something in the posture starts to find a new alignment. Again, other, others of us with over-energized structures tends to be that those senses of self are either kind of over-energized or under, kind of floppy. I remember sitting for years uh, and I was in a meeting, same friend with the whack-a-mole. So he's, a, he's a spiritual friend. He gives me good reflections sometimes. He said, he was pointing out that I was sitting like this. And he, he was very sweet, and we knew each other well enough for it to be very kind. But he kind of pointed out that I was really sort of bright, but I wasn't really kind of rooted down through the hips, through the legs. And there's a way that my world was all, uh, well, it would be good if I had the heart, mostly it was up here. My world, my knowing, my seeing, my opening, great. But again, if I want to know about uh, possible responding to anything, I need the center of action, belly, legs, body. So back to <laughs> the cliffhanger. <laughs> of this person, she, um, she began exploring her practice here and now, so in the, in the present moment, uh, so real-time immediacy of practicing her practice this morning. And um, she said a new thing was coming to her, which had never been before, which was actually um, a certain kind of a different new appreciation for the Buddha, the historical Buddha. That hadn't been her thing. She wasn't a Buddhist. Or, um, and she said, I actually, by reading some of the suttas, by reading some of the text, even though that wasn't the thing I was most excited about, I'm noticing that I'm feeling a kind of closeness to the historical Buddha. She said, well, I never felt that before. Um, and that touched her. As she said it, some tears came to her eyes and... Um, there was this sort of softening and wet, wetening of her heart. And as she let that happen, she noticed here and now that, that um, a sort of power came through the center of her, kind of potency, kind of, that had a confidence about practice and about the lineage and about the guidance of the, that the Buddha offered, offers. 
And so at first the power came. She goes, oh, it feels like... I said, what is it? She said, it feels like power. And then she sort of shrunk a little bit. She goes, oh, power, power, powers. And then all her associations with the word power, which for many of us aren't all good associations, right? She goes, but power, power. And I said, yeah, the, the Buddha had a lot of power. It was grounded in ethics. But potency to have a teaching that lasts this long, that's a lot of power. Right? So holding the word power letting herself have the power. She goes, yeah, okay. A lot of power, a lot of confidence in the refuge of Buddha, historical Buddha, but right there and then she contacted Buddha, Buddha, that awake aspect that is not shrinking around a particular thought, feeling, sensation, idea, sense of self, is not shrinking around a particular one. She's here, and the life is unfolding. As she breathed with that, she said, there's a theme I want to explore today. It has to do with pushing. I notice that I'm pushing a lot myself off of retreat in my work. I'm pushing myself. She said, it doesn't always have a lot of kindness in it. Um, and she said, and there's still a gap between my life on the cushion and my life and my work. The kindness and the depth of emptiness that I understand on the cushion isn't completely translated. And I want that, she said. I want that. As she explored the power, she said, oh, oh, I noticed that the energy is very slow, Things feel less hurried. I feel less under pressure, less hurried. So she was getting used to that sense. So part of practice is when the wholesome, beneficial states have arisen, to really know them. Part of wise effort. Here it's wholesome, it's beneficial, it leads onward. She let it permeate her body, this confidence, this power, this, awake, this wakefulness. She could feel it in her body, speed slowed down, the sense of time changed, the sense of self changed, as the sense of time changed. And then she said, oh. She goes, oh, now something's starting to constellate. A shape is constellating that feels a little fearful. Right? She goes, oh, this has that same quality of when I'm pushing myself. Like I've got to get somewhere. She stopped and she started to explore that shape through those different centers. What does that mean? So she had enough stillness to pause and not go and fall directly in that moment into the fear. She could feel the fear, but it wasn't riding her because her refuge was in Buddha, Buddha the wakefulness. She said, oh, the energy starts to get more choppy. She said, and time has speeded up. That sense of time that was sort of uh, changing and becoming very slow has started to speed up. I feel like I've got to understand something here. Or, right? So, so the energy, she started to notice on the energetic level that which sees the energy is not bound by that particular shape the energy is taking. That which is recognizing the changing nature from the slowness to the speeding up, that is refuge, that is Buddha. That is, as one of my teachers would say, that's the blessed one. The blessed one right here and now. That which hears the choppiness has more creative potential of response. She said, okay, I can feel the energy changing. I said, what else do you notice? She said, well, emotionally it feels like fear. There's a quality of fear and I can feel that on the level of the heart. What's the level of sensations doing? She said, oh, I don't know. I can feel the energy. I can feel the emotion. Sensation. She goes, oh, there's this really strange contraction at the bridge of my nose. 
and under my eyes and right across my forehead. She goes, oh. And then she starts to get interested. She goes, oh, I didn't know that was there. So she started to feel this contraction across here. So she has the sensation, she has the emotion, she has the energetics. And she has the cognitive part, which is she can start to hear the, the monologue of the self in there, which is like, oh, I've got to gotta, gotta, gotta do this thing. As she saw all of that and could resonate with the contraction, seeing is one part, resonating is another part, feeling it, sensing it. She said that the kindness that she'd been practicing for years, this well not for years, for a long time, this particular person has been doing a lot of emptiness practice, which has been beautiful and beneficial. Seeing that any of the things that are arising in her experience, internally, externally, don't have something at the center that you can finally nail. They are empty. And that she's been really seeing through her direct practice that they arise dependently on conditions. They're not self, they don't have an inherent core, and that has given her a lot of freedom. A lot of freedom. But as she reflected today, that degree of wisdom has not been married with an equivalent amount of kindness. And so since her last retreat, she's been practicing more kindness. And today, as she starts to see that contraction of the fear, her heart, she said her heart came forward. And it didn't need to see through. It didn't need for this thing to dissolve. It didn't need for her to get to the bottom of it and see that it was empty. She knows that. That's one of the lenses. That's one of the gifts. That's one of the melodies, one of the ways of seeing that she has in her instrument. And what came forward was the kindness. She loved this shape as it arose. Doesn't mean it's pleasant, it hurt, it's painful. She didn't need it to go away. She didn't need to whack a mole. She didn't need to do anything with it. The love came to meet her understanding, her depth understanding. And then it did change, of course. It did change, but slower. Slower, it starts to dissolve the energetics, the sensation, the emotion, the sense of self. And then she said, she was so delighted. You know what that's like when you see those, you see deeply into something. It's delightful. The heart loves it. She said, oh, and what did she say? She, she, she said, um, oh, that's really well done. And she goes, oops, I shouldn't think that, right? That's, that's how I'm taking that insight to be me and that's selfing and I shouldn't self and, right? I said, wait a sec. Let yourself feel the well done. That joy in the heart that celebrates seeing more deeply, it's wholesome. If you cling, yes, you'll see the suffering, but I don't think that's what's happening. She goes, no, I'm instead clinging to that sense of I shouldn't cling. I'm now the self who shouldn't be the self who's grandiose. I'm the one who shouldn't be grandiose. That other side, right? There's the big puffed up self. There's the I shouldn't have that self the sort of false humility, the self-deprecating, another kind of self, softened. She could have the joy. Right. <clears throat> As the joy came, there was more joy. Could she let herself have that? And as she, f she, um, she continued with the practice, she continued along in this vein, and notice that as that, um, that self-deprecating, that shrinking around the expansion started to happen. Like I shouldn't, I shouldn't delight in this too much. I shouldn't delight in myself too much. She could apply the same principles. Where do you notice that self-deprecating self-shape? She goes, oh, she said, I feel it in my arms. She said, they've just tightened. They've tightened and shrunk in. There's no space under the elbow, under the armpits. And I'm shrinking, tightening around the heart. She was so delighted 
to see this because that which sees the contraction is not bound. She's not being ridden by the self-deprecating sense. She can ride it. She can ride it. It's a wave that she can ride. And as she saw it from Buddha, again, it starts to change. It starts to shift. It starts to open. It's not always so... um, We're not always so dexterous. Conditions had come together for her today. There was a lot of dexterity, a lot of ease and facility in seeing and touching and feeling. Sometimes on retreat, we feel far from a virtuoso. We may have been going along really happily in our practice and then something does feel, either feel stuck or we're in that same loop that we've been in for the last week, whatever it might be. What's the practice then? What does virtuosity look like then? What does it mean then to take refuge in Buddha? And sometimes that will be, and I'll give a little more attention, to listening on the level of the story. So let me give an example. Um, I was on a long retreat practicing in a, somewhere else other than here. And there was a uh, one of these little notes on the notice board. We used to have an equivalent one here, I don't know if it's still there, that says, if you're doing your walking meditation on the grass, does it still say that? Please don't keep walking in the same spot over and over again because it wears down the grass. Do we still have that? Yeah. This was another centre. It's clearly part of the culture. Um, and I was. it was a month into the retreat, something like that. And there was... A man, and he happened to be a friend of mine, I thought. Um, and he was doing his, he, we were on a three month retreat, and he was doing his walking meditation back and forth. And guess what? In the same spot. And day after day, the grass got more and more downtrodden, more and more beige, less and less green, more and more brutalized. Right? This is how it was feeling to me. And who did he become in my mind? Can you guess? (laughs) Well, the simple version is he's bad. That's the simple splitting. I'm the good one who would never do that. He's the bad one who not only doesn't listen by the rules, but he treads down vulnerable things. Right. Now, yes, there are people who tread down vulnerable things in this world, And maybe it would have been good if he'd walked somewhere else, but have you ever had it where the level of charge doesn't quite meet the thing that's happening? Has anyone not ever had that in their life? (laughs) It doesn't quite meet. It's like, but he's my friend and it's only grass, says the mind. Yeah, but if you let people get away with things like that in this world, right? Yeah, but it's only grass and he's your friend. No, he's not. Anyone who does things like that is not my... Right, so then you're in this kind of flip-flop, flip-flop, flip-flop with the mind for ages, you know, a week later. So, one skillful practice, don't go anywhere near. Yeah, if it was really harmful, I could speak to a staff person. I thought there might be more merit in seeing if I could work with it. First work for me was to go nowhere near where he was walking. Skillful sense restraint. Go somewhere else. Even if my mind was going, I bet he's still there. And that. <laughs> I bet he's still doing that thing. All right. So sense restraint will be one skillful means. At that particular time, on that particular retreat, at the beginning, I didn't have the skill to work with what it was pushing up in me. Sometimes those things that carry more charge than they sort of warrant, um, we need a lot of skill. We need a lot of mindfulness of body, more and more and more and more mindfulness of body to really slow down the process And not just mindfulness of my body, but mindfulness of earth body, of big body, of really placing ourselves firmly in a bigger refuge. I'll pick up my story, but I want to give a piece from the Buddha about body. I can't stress it enough. 
At that point, I would say that Mara, so Mara, the personification of delusion, Mara had a foothold in me. I couldn't have that sight of that man walking back and forth without being spun so fast in my mind. There wasn't, I didn't have ability to be mindful with it or investigate or look deeply. It was too much. So back to the mindfulness of body practice. This is from the Buddha. Really beautiful metaphor uh, in the mindfulness of body sutta. So different than the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the Four Foundations Sutta. Um, He said, Suppose there were a dry, sapless piece of wood. Right? Imagine a piece of wood that has no sap left in it. And he said, And a man came with an upper fire stick. So I found out what that was. That's, you know, when you make fire with a one stick on the other stick. Have you ever done that? Have you ever seen that done? Right. A man comes with an upper fire stick thinking, I shall light a fire. I shall produce heat. What do you think, monks and nuns? Could the man light a fire and produce heat by rubbing the dry, sapless piece of wood with an upper fire stick? <laughs> yes. Um, yes, venerable sir. So too, because when anyone has not developed and cultivated mindfulness of body, Mara finds an opportunity and a support in them. Right? Any of you ever feel like your body feels like a dry, sapless piece of wood? It's, 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 not, it's not bound that way. The mindfulness of body literally uh, makes us more sappy in the best sense of the word, juicy, like our attention fills our physicality and opens it up. This is really, really necessary. Don't underestimate the first foundation of mindfulness. It's profound, really profound. So then he says, um, Ah, Yes, suppose there were, this is a good thing, he's very systematic, the Buddha. Suppose there were a wet, sappy piece of wood. Have you got the gist of this? This is a metaphor. And a man came with an upper fire stick, thinking, I shall light a fire, I shall produce heat. What do you think, monks and nuns? Could the man light a fire and produce heat by taking the upper fire stick and rubbing it against the wet, sappy piece of wood? (laughs) No, venerable sir. So too, because when anyone has developed and cultivated mindfulness of the body, Mara cannot find an opportunity or a support in them. Right. So on this occasion, there was not enough practice basis at that point for me to handle that particular charge. There had been practice, there had been some opening and seeing, but that particular charge was taking me further. So back to the three centers. I couldn't, I was out of my body, I was spun up. Do you know what that's like when you're spun up? I was just, just in this small little piece of the head, hating him, thinking I wasn't supposed to hate him, which is another spin. Right, So there's the one who hates him and there's the one who's not supposed to hate him. And I'm spinning all over the place. You know, like on a, a river where you, you know, or a pinball machine. You know, like a pinball, you go ping against that thing and then hating him. I'm not supposed to hate him. Ping off to another kind of constellation of self. Right, okay, mindfulness. Can I, can I rest back a little bit in Buddha? I don't have much mindfulness of body yet, but can I hear? Can I hear the one who's hurting here? Can I hear this cry of the world? That which hears the cry. That which is intimate with the cry, but recognizes the cry as a cry, is Buddha. Is not bound. And then I start to hear the cry. But he shouldn't, and it's not right. And, and 
if everybody and somebody has to do something about something. But I could hear it. That pain. Oh, here's the one who's hurt. Here's the one who's hurt. So by hearing from Buddha, we hear the moan and the cry and the pain and the plea or whatever it is we're working with. And we can hear the self-inference. The hurt. Or the rage. Or the hate. Or the lust. Or whatever it is that is the self-inference that starts to unlock. Here's the one that's hurt. So there's the emotional center, the hurting, the hurting. As I hear the one who's hurt make room for her, I can start to sense the body, the tightness in the shoulders, the kind of urgency in the hands, the pleading in the gesture. Not that I was literally doing that, but we can start to sense the energetics of that sense of self who has been for many of us some of those senses of self have been locked far away and come to the surface as our resonators open as our mindfulness of body as our body gets more sappy there are Mara doesn't find a root but some of those selves who need to be known who need to be heard, who are coming to be loved, they can come. They can come, come to the surface and be known. Yes, as sensation. Yes, as emotion, as energetics, as a self-inference. That which recognizes those is intimate with those, is wise and very kind. So one skill, and I'll finish in just a moment, one skill is to, at times, if, you're, if you are kind of locked in to a shape, and sometimes it's not a big lock, sometimes it's a subtle way that we're attending, is to say, where would be a good place to attend? It might be that I'm hurting in the heart, but actually I might do well to leave the heart alone. Sometimes I want to come in closer, sometimes back right off. Somebody last week whose heart was hurting a lot, really in a lot of pain, they actually found that when they came to the body center and they came to their jaw and their hips and just opened the jaw, right? A little bit of space opened up around the pressure in the heart. Moving the hips. A little bit of space opened up around the pressure in the heart. Sometimes we're just working at the level of sensation and we might do well. Is there an emotional tone here? And I'm sort of busy walking through the corridor, you know, or I'm doing my yogi job and I'm with the broom and I'm sweeping the floor. And you, oh, wow. Oh, I'm really aversive right now. Can I feel that on the level of the heart? So this is just a beginning if it's a helpful way of thinking. Some of you may already use this very well. One teacher who's really brilliant at kind of unfolding this way of um, practicing with sankharas, with karmic formations, is Ajahn Sachito from the Thai forest tradition. Very, a lot of skill if this way of thinking about practice is interesting or valuable to you, he's a really good one to follow this up with. And I can give a reference to some of his talks that do that really, really well. Um, but for now, just thinking about the three centers may, may offer some uh, dexterity in handling places where we might feel a little stuck. So I offer this for your um, practice. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.